Tonight's Bible reading uh, is from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 12, verses 20 to 50. And if you'd like to follow it in the Bibles there, it's uh, on page 925. John 12, 20 to 50. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this hour, this very reason, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may may become children of light. When he'd finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders did believe in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as light, 
so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, David. Uh, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Sir, we'd like to see Jesus. Those words are inscribed on thousands of pulpits all around the world. Sir, we'd like to see Jesus. They're great words. Uh, All Souls Langham Place in London has a pulpit. Uh, It's a famous church in London, and preaching in that church is quite daunting. But when you walk up the steps and see that inscription, Sir, we want to see Jesus. It's just so liberating as a preacher because... That's all we're called to do, to to show people Jesus. People need Jesus. Uh, People don't just need opinions or political thoughts or cultural analysis or psychology or self-help, as good as those things are. People's ultimate need is just to have their eyes open to understand and to see and to marvel at and encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, So people who are not in church, who don't step into the church building, their desperate need in life is to understand who Jesus is, the the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the, the kindness of Christ. That's their biggest need. And for those of us in church who call ourselves Christians, your biggest need, my biggest need is to keep on seeing more and more and more of how glorious Jesus is. Because uh, Jesus is kind of like this, this diamond who is so multifaceted that every time you see a different part of his character, it blows your mind and say, wow, I never saw that before. We need to see Jesus and not be satisfied with this shallow understanding of who Jesus is. So let me begin by asking tonight, Have you seen Jesus? Have you had your eyes open to how glorious Jesus is? When was that? How did that happen? Or perhaps a different question. Do you wake up each day and say, God, I just want to see Jesus today. I want to experience and encounter Jesus in a way I hadn't done before. Is your whole life permeated by wanting to see how glorious Jesus is? That's the big idea of John 12. It's a great chapter. And this is the the last public sermon of Jesus. After chapter 12, he turns his attention to his disciples, his private ministry. It's Passover time, so Jerusalem is packed with people coming to to celebrate at the temple with their sacrificial lambs. And we saw at the beginning of chapter 12, Mary, she loves Jesus so much. She is so devoted and adores Jesus that she she pours that expensive nard over his feet. 
but she's anointing him for his death. And we saw earlier on that in chapter 12, the, the people are waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, save us. And for the first time, Jesus has revealed himself as the Messiah, the, the king. But the Pharisees, the religious people, hate that. And they say in verse 19, look how the whole world has gone after Jesus. Wouldn't that be great if the whole world went to see Jesus? And you get a glimpse of that in verse 20, that there were some Greeks or some God-fearing Gentiles who were up in Jerusalem for the Passover there to worship. And they came to Philip because Philip is a Greek name, a Gentile name. And he's from Bethsaida, which is the Gentile region. And they asked this request, Sir, they say, we'd like to see Jesus. Now what they're asking, they're not asking just to get a glimpse of him. And they're asking for like an interview with him. They're asking to encounter him, to understand him, to sit at his feet and to experience him. It's a bit like when you go to the doctors and you walk into the doctor and say, I've come to see the doctor. And the receptionist says, oh, take a seat in the waiting room. And so you're there with, what, 20, 30 people who have come to see the doctor. Now, I hope your doctor doesn't walk out of their rooms and walk into the waiting room with 20 people come to see the doctor and say, well, here I am, you've seen a doctor, and then walk back into their rooms. That's not why you came. You came to see a doctor. You came to let them examine you. You came to sit in their rooms and encounter them and let them diagnose you and let them use their expertise. That's what it means to see Jesus. You want to come to the the feet of Jesus and, and let him examine you and encounter him and spend time with him and really, really grasp his glory. We call this series, We've Seen His Glory. The, the words from directly from John 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. And the word glory, it, it means his, his weightiness, his heaviness. His splendor, but can also mean his, his beauty or his wonder or his delight. And put those two together. We, we've seen his heaviness, his weightiness, his splendor, his magnificence, and his delight. And here's our big question for tonight Where do we see the glory of Jesus most? Where do you experience and see the splendor of Jesus most? Now, when he turned water into wine, we saw his glory, but the hour had not yet come. When he walked on water, you saw his glory, but the hour had not yet come. When he healed the sick and raised Lazarus, we saw his glory, but the hour had not yet come. Because five times in John, we're told the hour had not yet come. And they asked to see him, and Jesus is quite cryptic in verse 23. He says, the hour has now come. For the Son of Man, the, the Daniel 7 figure, the one with the authority, the Messiah, to be glorified. So this is the hour when Jesus is going to be glorified. So what's he going to do? Throw a party? Have a banquet? No, he's glorified when he is beaten. And he's glorified when he is crucified. The hour has come where we're going to see, church, the glory of Jesus Christ most and it happens in an old wooden cross. 
Got two simple words, glory and believe. Glory and believe. So firstly, glory, the glorious death of Jesus because the death of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ was a supreme moment in history where God revealed his glory. It wasn't some mistake. It wasn't some repulsive, barbaric death. It was a glory moment. The analogy is brilliant in verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a seed, a kernel of wheat, falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it will produce many seeds. He says, take, take a seed and it's insignificant and it's powerless and it's dead and lifeless. And you could look at a seed, but that's not its purpose. What's the purpose of a seed? The purpose of a seed is you plant that seed in soil and you plant that seed in dead, dirty ground and it dies and it rots and it decays. But the seed has to die in order to burst forth and bring a new life. Now what's the purpose of Jesus coming? It wasn't just to walk on water and turn water into wine. The purpose of his coming was for him to die, to be buried in the ground, to be entombed, because he had to die in order to bring new life. He had to die in order to be a harvest of multitudes. Now, I know that you know that. I know that you know about the cross. We sing about it, we talk about it. Now, here's my fear. My fear is that many of us here at the Bridge Church, we understand the cross. You could tell me theologically what happens at the cross. You can explain the, the substitution and the swap. You get all that. But my fear is that we've made the cross into just this event in history. But it doesn't personally change you today. You don't feel it. You don't marvel at it. To be honest, sometimes you're a bit bored of hearing about it. You've heard about it so many times. I want to zoom into verses 27 to 33. They're glorious verses. The glory of the agony of the cross, the gut-wrenching agony. John doesn't include the, the Garden of Gethsemane, but he does write these words, verse 27. Jesus says, look at them with me. He says, now my soul is troubled. Uh, that word troubled, it means agitated, stressed, distressed, disturbed, unsettled. It, it's the mental anguish that the Lord Jesus Christ is feeling. So why is Jesus troubled? Why is he troubled? Have you ever had an event that you know is about to happen in a few days' time and you know it's going to be difficult? And you might have an, a restless night and your mind is, is racing and you just feel a bit unsettled, a bit agitated, a bit troubled. Now take that and multiply it a billion times. Because Jesus is troubled because he knows, he knows the physical anguish and pain he's about to experience. He's God, he knows in a few days' time. He's going to be beaten and whipped so hard that his skin is going to be torn from his back. He knows that. And he knows that that crown of thorns is going to be pierced on his head with such force that blood trickles down his face. He knows that. 
And he knows that his wrists and his feet are going to have these nine-inch nails driven through them. He knows all of that. He knows the physical pain he's about to experience. Wouldn't you be troubled? But it's not just physical pain. He knows the emotional pain. He knows the loneliness and the desertion and the betrayal and the mockery he's about to experience. But it's not just that. He knows the, the spiritual pain. He knows that for the first time in history, he's going to experience not the love of his father, but the wrath of his father. He knows that the wrath of God, his heavenly father, is going to be poured out on him. He knows he's about to become sin for those of us who should experience that pain. He knows that the sins of the world are going to be poured onto his shoulders. He knows he's going to cry out, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? That's why he's troubled. Wouldn't you be troubled? You get this window, this beautiful window into the, the humanity of Jesus. Do you ever think about that? What it felt like for the perfect, sinless Son of God to experience that pain. And John says that's glorious. Verse 27. My soul is troubled, he says, and, and what shall I say? It's a good question. What's he going to say? Help I'm the Messiah, get me out of here. I can't do this, God. That would be great things to say, but he doesn't say that. What should he say? Father, save me from this hour. I'm sure he, he wanted to say that. He kind of did say that in Gethsemane. You know, If there's any other way, if it's possible to avoid drinking that cup of wrath. But there was no other way. It's a rhetorical question, verse 27. No, he says, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. This is my moment. This is why I left the luxury of heaven. This is why I was born. This is as the salvation plan that I should walk to a cross. Because if Jesus didn't die, there's no salvation. If Jesus didn't die, there's no substitute for sins. It's the agony of Jesus, and it's glorious. And he says these amazing words, verse 28. Father, glorify your name. I love that. Not about him, his desires, his wants, his needs, his plans. Father, glorify your name. May your will be done. Hallowed be your name, he says. Now, I hope you know that Jesus didn't enjoy going to the cross, but he did endure it. So the Father's name may be magnified and glorified. He did endure it so that through him, all people might come to himself, that, that people could experience forgiveness and healing and hope through his death. Then a voice came from heaven, verse 28. There's an audible voice from heaven only three times in the Gospels. At the baptism of Jesus, the voice says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. At the transfiguration, the voice comes from heaven saying, this is my son, listen to him. And here in John 12, the voice comes from heaven, it says, I have glorified it at the incarnation, at his birth. And I will glorify it again at the crucifixion. This old wooden cross is going to be this moment of glory. Now the crowd thought it was the thunder or an angel. But Jesus says in verse 30, this voice was, not, was for your benefit, not mine. I love that. He's saying, I don't need the affirmation, but you do. 
because in a few days' time, the disciples are going to be so discouraged and so despondent as they watch, the man, watch him die. And they need to be reminded that, no, 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 this was the moment of glory. We heard that voice from heaven. And I just wonder whether, church, we need to hear this voice from God saying, this is for your benefit. The cross is glorious. Because you might be sitting here tonight and you might be a bit embarrassed by the cross, thinking, you know, oh, it's a bit repulsive, a bit barbaric that the father should sacrifice his son. How dare we be embarrassed about the moment of glory? Or, or, or you maybe are just a bit sort of ho-hum, a bit bored, yeah, the cross, the cross, the cross, he died for me, he died for me. We're supposed to be in awe and wonder because the cross was this moment of extraordinary victory, a glorious victory. Verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. And when John uses that word world, he's not talking about cosmos, he's talking about People who ignore God, who stand opposed to God, who live in God's world, breathe God's air, but choose to ignore him. He says they're going to be judged, and now is the moment of judgment. Because light has come, and light always exposes darkness. You put light next to darkness, and light always wins. The Dale household have been enjoying experimenting with, with home haircuts during lockdown. And so we ordered some clippers from Amazon.com and we thought we were pretty good. I mean, all the boys sat there with their bowl cuts and we just did these cuts and I stepped back and go, oh, that's quite good, you know. <laughs> and then you, you take them to a real barber's and then you see the professional haircut and you go, oh, actually, my haircut was terrible compared to the professional haircut. That's what's happening at the cross, that we might think, we, you know, we're, oh, we're pretty good, we're not too bad. And then you compare yourself with the perfect spotless, blameless, all-righteous, all-knowing Son of God, and you go, ouch, you know, I'm not really good. And so you're facing judgment. And that's the moment of the cross where Jesus is saying to you, you, you should be judged and you will be judged unless you trust in me. Now is the time, verse 31, for the prince of this world to be driven out. That's the victory of Calvary. At that moment in time, the devil, the Satan, the evil one, he was banished, he was defeated, he was mocked, he was scorned, he has no power. The devil is real, the devil does exist, and he whispers, he deceives you, he tempts you to deny God. But at the cross, this moment of apparent defeat, Jesus is shouting, no, 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 it's not defeat, it's victory because Satan has been defeated. He's been disarmed, he has been made a public spectacle of, Colossians 2, and he's been triumphed over, he's a loser. I've said it before that when my boys play games, the, the one who wins the game has their victory dance and the victory dance goes like this, you make an L shape with your, with your, your hand like this and you do a little dance saying, loser, loser, loser. And that's what Jesus is doing to Satan at the cross. And that means that if you believe in Jesus, then the glory of the cross is that you don't sit under the temptation of Satan anymore. He has no power over you. Oh, he can whisper all he likes. But when you look upward and see your sinless saviour dying there, you say, no, 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 get behind me, Satan. 
I will not be mocked. I will not be ridiculed. You have no power over me. Verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up, says Jesus, not, not lifted up in worship, but lifted up on an old wooden cross, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That's the victory, that all people can now come to Jesus. He's not teaching universalism there. He's not saying that all people will be saved. He's saying that through the death of Jesus, no one is excluded, whether you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, slave or free, you can be saved. When I'm lifted up, now, at the time that, that phrase comes in John's Gospel, it's in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus is speaking to Jesus. Uh, and Jesus says, You must be born again. Uh, and Jesus quotes this bizarre passage of scripture. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the bronze snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And if you know your Bible, it's a really bizarre story in the Old Testament where the, God's people were surrounded by these venomous snakes and they were bitten by the snakes and they died. And, and they called out to God, save us, help us. And God's solution was this. He said to Moses, take a bronze snake and put a snake on a pole. And whoever looks to that snake, whoever trusts me and looks to that snake will not die, but they will live. How do you think you'd feel if you heard that? Oh, that's stupid. Look to a snake, a bronze snake, and I'll live. But it was true. And it's the same with the cross, isn't it? It sounds a bit stupid. It sounds a bit simple. That one man 2,000 years ago could hang on a cross, and all who look to him, who just believe in him, will have eternal life. It sounds too easy, too simplistic. Perhaps that's why we like to add terms and conditions. Perhaps that's why we need to think, we need to add things to the gospel to make it a bit more, you know, theologically dense. The, the, the youngest of child can grasp this. A man dying on the cross 2,000 years ago took your sins, took my sins, so that you and I can be forgiven, washed, cleansed, healed, have eternal life. What more do you need than that? That is the glory of the cross. I love this illustration a man a man fell into a pit and as he was in the pit that he couldn't get out of all these people walked on past with their opinions and so the subjective person said oh i feel for you down in that pit it must be terrible and the realist said yep you're in a pit yep you're in a pit and the legalist, the legalist Christian said, oh, you must have done terribly things wrong to be in that pit. You deserve that. And Buddha said, your pit is only a state of mind. The scientist calculated the force required to get out of the pit and the geologist said, oh, endure the rock strata while you're in the pit. The self-pitying person, excuse the pun, the self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen the pit that I'm in. And the faith healer said, oh, just believe that you're not really in a pit and it'll all be okay. And then Jesus walks on by and sees the person in the pit and says, you're in a pit, aren't you? And you know you can't help yourself. Would you let me help you? And Jesus reaches down with his hand 
and he grabs you and says, just trust me, hold on to me, let me pull you out of that pit. And he pulls you out of that pit and he holds you and, and he looks at you and says, I love you. That's why I rescued you. I love you. You're mine. It's really simple, isn't it? But it's glorious. Here's my second word, believe. Do you believe that? It's not a trick question. It's actually a yes, no question. Do you believe that? If I asked you, do you believe that the Mona Lisa has no eyebrows, what would you say? The answer to that is yes, she has no eyebrows. If I said, do you believe that French fries came from France? The answer to that is no, they came from Belgium. Who knew, who knew that? Do you believe that God the Father loved you enough to send his only son to sacrifice his son so that you and I could be forgiven? Do you believe that? Yes or no? It's black or white, yes or no? And what's horrific about John 12 is that so many people do not believe. And I can't help but read these verses and think about my family and my friends who still do not believe. Verse 37, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Isn't that shocking? Despite all the miracles they had seen, They'd seen Jesus turn water to wine. They'd seen him walk on water. They'd seen him feed 5,000 people. They'd seen him drive out demons, give sight to the blind, heal the paralytic, raise Lazarus. They'd seen all of that. Yet they still, look at the words, would not believe. That's a horrible word, isn't it? Would not. They were refusing. There was a hardness in their heart. I will not believe. I hope you know that miracles don't change people's hearts. There's an unbelief in our hearts that just refuses to believe. I've got family and friends who have done Alpha courses and Christianity Explore courses and Simply Christianity courses, but there's a hardness there and they just keep on saying, nope, 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 don't believe. Now, if the word would not in verse 37 is scary, the word in verse 39 is perhaps more scary. For this reason, they, they could not believe because God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. And that sounds horrific, doesn't it? Remember Pharaoh back in Exodus? Such a hard heart, he said, I will not let people go. And the harder his heart was, the more that God hardened his heart. Which came first, his hard heart or God hardening? We don't really know. That's the mystery, isn't it? But what we do know is this. There is ample evidence these things are written down for us so that people might believe. There's ample evidence and still people will not believe. So what do I do with my family and friends who don't believe? I can pray. I do pray constantly, constantly praying, God, please, please open their eyes. God, please soften their hearts. Do you pray for those that you know and love who don't yet know Jesus? It's the only thing we can do is to pray and to witness. But many people do believe, and I love this. Many people believe, but there are different types of belief. Verse 42, at the same time, many, even among the leaders, the religious leaders, they put their trust in Jesus. They were converted. I think these guys are genuinely converted. But it's kind of a, a secret or silent belief. They're kind of like camouflaged Christians. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly 
acknowledge their faith. They were kind of secret believers because they were scared for fear that they'd be excommunicated, thrown out of the synagogue. They loved the human praise more than the praise of God. They were people pleasers, but they were rightly scared of the opposition and persecution they might face. Like many people around the world today who are secret believers. But I was thinking this week, that's not us, is it? If we are openly saying, yes, we're a Christian, we don't face excommunication from synagogues or churches. And yet, and yet, so many of us here at the Bridge Church seem to be fairly private about their faith. We're not openly sharing our love for Jesus. No, we run the Alpha Course, we've got a thousand adult members, and, and yet so few people invite. Why is that? It's been said that secret discipleship is impossible. Either discipleship will destroy your secrecy or your secrecy will destroy your discipleship. Please don't be a camouflage Christian. You've got nothing to fear. Be a sacrificial believer. Verse 44, Jesus cried out, whoever believes, who trusts in me, doesn't believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The, you believe in God the Father, the one who looks at me, looks at Jesus, is seeing God who sent me. Do you understand that? When you say yes to Jesus, your eyes are opened, not just to the Son, but to the Father. And the way of discipleship, the way of believing is the way of the cross. Just as Jesus sacrificed things for us, so we to sacrifice things for Jesus. I loved Alex's testimony. It's just so beautiful, isn't it? All the things of this world that she thought was satisfied, all the things she chased in life, but they're never satisfied because they are the things of the darkness. They're not light. It's really simple to be able to say yes to Jesus and then you follow him. What he says you do, where he goes you go. And you don't live trying to seek the praise of people but the praise of your Father in heaven. There's a beautiful, beautiful promise in verse 26. I'll finish with this. When we believe, when we say yes, verse 26, whoever serves me, serves Jesus, must follow me, must walk in my ways. Where I am, my servant also will be. Here's the promise. My Father, God's, uh, Jesus' Father, our Father in heaven, will honour the one who serves me. You ever thought about that? When, you, when you're seeking to live a life of, as a believer, when you're seeking to live a life that pleases God and to walk in the light, not in the darkness, then your Father in heaven honours you. He looks at your life Monday to Sunday, everything you do, everything you think, and says, well done, I'm so pleased with you. Don't you want to live a life that honours or you receive honour for the one who created you? To hear the words, I'm so pleased with you, well done, it's really quite simple. Wake up today, wake up tomorrow, wake up the next day saying, we want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, we do want to see Jesus. We're sorry for the times that we have been distracted by the things that we have looked at or read that have filled our minds with things which are not of you. 
We're sorry for the times when we have just been satisfied with a very shallow vision of Jesus. Help us this week just to see Jesus more, to see more of his glory, to understand and to encounter him and to experience him. We want to experience the Lord Jesus. Father, my heart is aching for those I know and love who don't yet believe, who seem not to be willing to believe. So I leave us a moment now to pray for those we know and love who as yet do not believe. And I beg of you, Heavenly Father, open their eyes and soften their hearts.